Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Teresa Torres, an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and coach. She teaches a structured and sustainable approach to continuous discovery that helps product teams infuse their daily product decisions with customer input. She's also the author of the book, Continuous Discovery Habits, and blogs regularly at producttalk.org. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Thanks, Douglas. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So let's kick things off with how you got your start in this work. Yeah, you know, I'm really fortunate. It goes all the way back to my college days where I was introduced to human-centered design and human-computer interaction. And it's kind of a funny story. I naively thought that's how business worked. And so as a 22-year-old, when I got my very first job, I really did expect. I worked at a really early software company in the, in the late 90s. We were bringing medical journals online. So we were like the technology provider for like science and New England Journal of Medicine. And it was kind of the Wild West, right? All of that stuff was brand new. The internet was still fairly new. And I really thought that we would be focused on the customer and using these human-centered practices. And that really wasn't how it worked at all. In fact, we just were a client shop and we did what our clients asked us to do. And I tried really hard to bring some of the, these principles to that work. And then I just always felt like I was swimming upstream. And then I went to another company where, again, it was an early stage startup in Silicon Valley. And I thought, oh, they'll be this way. And they weren't. And then after a few tries at that, I realized maybe we all know we should do this, but doing it is actually really hard. And so that's when I decided rather than building products, I really wanted to help product teams just spend way more time with their customers. You know, that echoes another story you told me in the pre-show chat around getting the masters and studying things like leaderless teams and then you know just not seeing collaboration play out that way in the workforce and so it seems like that's also found its way into your coaching work as well yeah i'm a bit of an idealist i think i just am stubborn and really want the world to work the way that we model it out um even though i know that it's much messier than that and that's maybe the messiness is what keeps it interesting so i have two interdisciplinary degrees and i think both are really have contributed to how i think about the world so as an undergraduate i was a symbolic systems major at stanford which nobody knows what that means it's essentially a cognitive science program infused with like machines so it's 
Cognitive science is how does the human brain process information. Symbolic systems is how does any symbolic system process information. So that's humans and machines. Um, and that's where I got introduced to human-computer interaction. And then I did a master's in learning and organizational change. And that's also an interdisciplinary program. It's really about the workplace, but it takes place in a school of education and social policy. So it sort of infuses the sort of social impact and and the more messy human side, which I, I just, I, the world is complex and I really like discovering new ways of exploring that complexity. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned you know, it's like the idealism is really fascinating from an academic standpoint. And, and this messy hard work of, of understanding how to put it into practice, I think, I think it's really important because there's so many people that are out there struggling, trying to just, they're just going through the motions. No one ever gave them a manual on how to collaborate, right? <laughs> or, or how to yeah. properly use email. It's like, they got, they got trained on a, on a skill, like, and it's all, you know, you could, you could kind of follow that history back to like maybe the, the guilds and the, you know, the, the systems of mentorship and stuff. And, but it's, it's really fascinating that these fundamental ways of working are not taught. Right. And so how do we take what's happening in research and management science and, and actually help people apply those things? Yeah, I think what's interesting is that we're seeing the complexity around us increase. So I think if we go back to guild days, the complexity in the world was was pretty small, right? You learned your trade, you bartered some things, you went about your life, and life was pretty simple. As we build more complex things, the way that we interact with other humans grows in complexity. And I think that's where we recognize that like like we saw a huge evolution from Taylorism in the in the industrial age to sort of just strategy, the strategy age of business. And that's because we started to see that efficiency doesn't always win, right? So assembly lines is all about efficiency and we we maxed that out. And then suddenly it was no longer a competitive differentiator and we had to start looking at what's the next line. And I think with the internet, we're actually seeing there's a line after strategy and that's how well do we collaborate to manage complex things and how do we do it in a way that scales really well? The thing we know about complex systems is you can't just like poke one part and expect it to change the way that you expect it to. And so instead of all these individual tradespeople impacting specific moments and thinking we can predict the output, we instead have to figure out how do we work together and and have a more complex interaction with the complex system. Yeah, it's like it reminds me of uh, the book Team of Teams, you know, and, and this notion of empowering the edges. I think to me, that was some of the best stories around actually implementing that at scale, right? It's like, let's empower these folks that are on the literally on the edges of where the information is evolving and where the fight's happening which is like, you know, you typically think of the army as one of the most like just poster versions of command and control, yet they, they had to adapt. Yeah, I remember as a um, master's student, I read the book Surfing the Edge of Chaos, and it was sort of my first like accessible introduction to complexity theory. And it blew my mind because to me, it described exactly what it's like to work on complex software and to work in an organization that's really trying to wrangle the way they influence the world. And I love the book Team of Teams. I think General McChrystal did an amazing job of sort of describing, here's how the world rapidly changed around us and we were behind. And the only way that we could look at it is to adapt and to really be on those edges and take advantage of all of the people and not just let the leaders at the very top make all the decisions. And that's, that's what I nerd out on. I really want, I really love this idea of how do organizations create environments where they can push decision making down to the edges so that they become a complex organism that's way better at engaging with the world and creating value in the world. 
So how do you, I mean, do you think that these concepts are at odds with the notion of scaling and, you know, operating at scale, given that, you know, some things may be in the complex domain, lots of things are in the complex domain, but there may be things in the complicated domain. How do we manage those transitions and support the different zones? Or is that even important? Should we just treat everything as complex? Uh, you know, it's funny is I actually think that pushing decision making to the edges and building a, a really robust organization around this idea of complexity is what leads to scale. It, it's just so different from how we think today. So I think most organizations think that we're going to scale by having everybody do things the same way. And we're going to scale by trying to predict the future and have a five-year plan. And we'll get all our ducks in a row and everybody moving in the same direction. And that's going to give us scale. That maybe that used to work. Like when we were literally manufacturing cars with humans and what differentiated us from the competitors was we built a car a little bit faster than somebody else. Then sure, like the, the more efficient your assembly line, the more you have everybody working together, that's a differentiator. But when we look at things like, I mean, even the way we make cars today, like it's not, I mean, first of all, cars are made by robots and, and really the work in creating a car is the design work and understanding the market and understand it's all the more messy human bits that are a lot more complex than just the efficiency of how do we manufacture this. And I think for those types of challenges, the only way to scale is to tap into the creativity and the power of every single person in your building. And how do you empower them to get really close to your customer and make the best decisions they can? It sounds messy though, right? Yeah, it is messy. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it's really interesting your point around those are made by robots. And I've been thinking about uh, automation for a while now and how the just the the rate of change and the, the amount of automation that's happening you know a lot of people get really worried and they talk about the loss of jobs etc and my hypothesis has been it's just gonna it just means we need to lean into our humanity which is what you were just saying right we need to do that messy stuff that humans can do yeah it's funny that you're bringing this up because i was just listening to a freakonomics episode about the robot apocalypse. Well, I just learned Freakonomics is back, which is amazing. And they were talking about the automation of jobs and everybody talks about the automation of jobs like it's a bad thing. And I get it because jobs are at stake and people's livelihoods are at stake. And we certainly need to do a better job of managing that this time around than we did in the industrial revolution. And even in the sixties, because clearly there was a lot of pain and suffering, but I also can see the potential of, look, if humans no longer have to do menial labor, what kind of creativity does that unlock and what kind of quality of life does that unlock if we're not slaving away for 12 hours a day, which frankly, we still have a lot of people in this world that are doing jobs that probably no human should be doing. So I'm excited about, again, an idealist, right? So I'm excited about the upside of can we tap into that human creativity? And, that, and like you said, that humanity. So I love where this is going. And I do want to get back to decision making in a moment, but I'll just <laughs> like close off this complexity conversation with uh, a curiosity around Kinevin. Do, do you ever use the Kinevin model in your work? You know, I've looked at it. It hurts my brain. Like I get the <laughs> underlying concepts, but the language around it is so hard. I really want somebody to rewrite it in a way more accessible way. And probably somebody has, but I haven't seen it. You know, we were just talking about that in the pre-show chat. There's so much out there that comes from academia that almost has to be repackaged so that yeah. You know, it can be adopted and put into practice. It's funny, like I'm willing to do the work. Like I, I read John Dewey, who is like the most archaic philosopher ever, but his work is so good that it, to me it's worth the effort. I keep trying with that framework and I just, I'm not, people, and people rave about it. Like I kind of feel like I just need to put in the work so I can get the payout. 
But I really, I think other people have, from my limited understanding, it feels like other people have expressed similar ideas in a much more accessible way. So I've sort of just pushed it to the side and moved on. Yeah, you know, I think Wordly Maps is another one that, that people yeah. struggle with in the same way. There's like some really awesome concepts. And I think the key is like getting those like four or five concepts, taking those bullet points away and like using them, but like yeah. leave a lot of the rhetoric aside because like it'll just get you tangled up. And, you know, we see that a lot, right? Because consultants want to have a thing to sell. Like the thing that the one that's coming to mind to me right now is jobs to be done. So I think like the content behind jobs to be done is phenomenal. It's all about need finding. It's all about really understanding your customer, building empathy, empathy, and really understanding what is it they're trying to do, which is amazing. And I actually think Tony Ulrich's original work is some of the best we have in the industry. And the language is atrocious. Like I just, I know so many people who just can't wrap their head around like, what do you mean I'm hiring you for a job? Like if you're hiring me as a consultant, sure, you're hiring me for a job, but I didn't hire my Apple watch for a job. Like I just, people get so stuck on the language and that's where I think words matter and how we communicate and simplifying language matters a lot. 100%, you know, and I, I think that is uh critical even in the moment as facilitators, you know, when we're in the yeah. room, if we're not communicating in ways that is approachable for everyone, then you know, like we, had, we didn't even ask why we're there. <laughs> Yeah, and I I'm guilty of it too. Like I have a I have a visual structure and opportunity solution tree and I kick myself. Like it's like the worst name. And I introduced the language for a reason. Like opportunities represent more than it's not just problems. We don't just solve problems in the product world. So like there was a very good reason for it, but I literally have to explain what an opportunity is in every talk and every conversation that I have. And it's dumb. I could have just collectively said needs, pain points, and desires and left it at that and maybe called it an outcome map or something way more simpler. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's a trade-off because sometimes we need to go through a little bit of that um, that pain moment <laughs> to help the participants understand where things are headed, right? Because I tend to agree with that reframing uh, around opportunities. Because if everyone's so pessimistically just thinking about, oh, what problem are, you know, it's just like yeah. this endless like onslaught of problems versus like, Let's be a little bit optimistic here about what we can create in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And people do. It's not it's not too bad. People generally get it. I think the problem with that word in particular is people think business opportunities. Mm, and so I have to deals. define it. Yeah. yeah. I have to find it like a market opportunity. Right. And so I have to define it as like, look, it's an opportunity to intervene positively in your customer's life. Like that's where it comes from. We're not just solving a problem. We might be delighting them. We might be addressing a pain point, removing some friction. So there is opportunity there, which is like, I, I don't even know where the word originally came from. I'm pretty sure that I did not invent it. I probably borrowed it from somebody else. And I think like in the product world, it's starting to become part of the vernacular and, and is less jargon. But I've been doing a ton of public speaking to promote my book. And it's one of the most common questions I get is what in the world is an opportunity? And I define it like seven times over the course of my talk. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, that's hilarious. This is jargon. No doubt. Yeah, I, I hear it. You know, I've heard it in the design thinking world for sure. You know, reframing yeah. problems as opportunities. And, you know, I mean, salespeople use it as like, you know, yeah. that's the, what happens before a deal happens. Like, and, and you're right. Jargon can take on so many different definitions. And I, as a facilitator, so often our work is helping people move past the jargon, get past yeah. that company slogan. <laughs> I remember one time we were doing a workshop for a, for a really large apparel company here in the U S and they, uh, 
they were so stuck on this like almost like missiony project statement that was, that had their brand all entangled in it, and yeah. uh, and we kept asking them, well, "What is this?" You know, like, "Why are you doing this?" And like, they kept repeating the jargon over and over. Yeah. But after a while, we had this breakthrough moment where like it just became really clear that no one knew what they were. Everyone had different yeah. definitions. And so we just like just like just settled in on this like moment of like understanding that no one understood each other, and they were, they had it was a big epiphany for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is why Dilbert was so successful, right? Like, I get emails from potential like prospects where I can't understand a word they're saying, which is kind of mind blowing. Like, we're so steeped in our organizational context, we forget how to talk to outsiders. And I actually do this with product teams. So I coach product teams on how to really understand the opportunity space. So how do you uncover your customers' needs, pain points, and desires? And I encourage them to frame opportunities from their customer's point of view and to use really simple language. Mm. And it's, it's really hard. Like, People write these really complex, long, convoluted opportunity statements. And I come in and I go, oh, your customer just needs to edit this thing? And they're like, yeah, it's just that simple. Okay, cool. Let's use those four words. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I feel like there's always this like desire to like impress the boss or like to sound sophisticated. And the thing I realized once I started doing more writing, like blogging, it's like, Man, if I can make like uh, if I can just simplify, then I get a lot more readership. Like you know, more people read and appreciate yeah. if it's like one hundred and one, easy to digest. And so it's like just make it obvious. <laughs> yes, who's the author? Really famous? It might be Hemingway, or it's probably not Hemingway. Think the quote about uh, I would have written a shorter letter had I had more time. Uh, Mark Twain is who I always attributed oh! to, but I might yeah, be Mark wrong, Twain. Yeah. Very possible, Mark Twain. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. And I I remember one of my first readers of my book, like in a review wrote, I was disappointed. It was only 244 pages. But then they continued in the review and said, but it was comprehensive and thorough and I don't know what was left out. And I was like, you should be thanking me. It's only 244 pages because I worked very hard to get it there like it started. In fact, I'm about to release a blog post talking about the process. And the first chapter I wrote would have put the book on pace to be 750 pages. Nobody needs a 750 page book, right? And I think that that's like the missing piece is that more is not more. Less, when it, definitely when it comes to writing and language, less is more. I know there's so many books that I have that I wish would have just been, you know, 50 page like, yeah. give it to me. Like, I just need yep. to know what I need to go do. Yep. Yeah. There's a there's a quote, I think it's from Hamlet, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but I read this as like a senior in high school and just thought this should be the motto for life. And the queen says to somebody in the book, uh, more matter, less art. Mm. And I was like, that is the best quote of all time. <laughs> That's great. You know, it, it also reminds me of, uh, I got, uh, there's an example on my desk right now because I was just flipping through Christina Watke's book, Radical Focus, and thinking about how it's 150 pages versus Measure What Matters, which is like 350 or something. And I think her book's better. I think her book it's much like, gets, better. yeah, it gets straight to the point of like what you need to know and how, how to deal with the bad stuff. Here's how I explain the difference between those books, because arguably John Doerr has a bigger name than Christina, although I think that's baloney. It's very much Silicon Valley white guyism. Um, but uh, uh, Christina is an operator, right? She is on the ground, hands-on experience with the OKRs. And the depth of her, she clearly worked very hard to communicate the depth of her experience in a very compelling story. 
John Doerr is a venture capitalist who saw OKRs used in a lot of environments, and there's value to that. But it's clear from reading his book, he does not have on the ground experience with them. And it's like, it's, I was shocked by that book. I was shocked that he clearly doesn't understand what a key result is. And don't get me wrong, there's some good nuggets in that book. Like it's not all garbage, but I was like, wow, you're writing a book about a concept that you fundamentally don't understand the basics. To me, that's unexcusable. So let's move on to decision making. And specifically, you talk a lot about the decision-making trio and product teams. And I, I find that really fascinating because group decision-making is a, a powerful thing and a lot of people, something that a lot of people struggle with, to be honest. Yeah. In some ways, when you just phrase it as group decision-making, I get a little bit of like churn in my stomach of like, wow, this must be an awful process, right? And I think it's because we associate group decision-making with consensus and we think of like hippies sitting in a room for eight hours trying to make a decision about what to eat for dinner and never really quite making a decision. I, that's not really the model of group decision making. So I work with product managers, designers, and software engineers. Usually it's a product trio. And there's a lot of more complex names for that if you want to get into language. Triads and three-legged stools and three amigas. But the idea is just these three roles working together to make good decisions about what to build. And what happens in the product world is everybody has an opinion. Like it does not take very much work whatsoever to, to, for your brain to come up with a fast answer to what should we build. The problem is if you have three people and they all come to their own fast answers, we end up in this opinion battle, right? Where I want to win, I want my idea to win over your idea. And then we end up in this awful consensus making structure. Whereas if we just understand a little bit about how our brains work and how decision-making happens, we can say, okay, we each individually came to a conclusion. What were the inferences that we made along the way? And oftentimes they're super fast inferences. So we have to actually take time to reflect and understand our own individual perspective so that we can explain, here's why I think this creates value for the business. Here's why I think it creates value for the customer. Here's how I got to this conclusion. And then if we take the time to explore each other's perspectives, what do we uncover? We're all relying on different knowledge and expertise, which is why we're making different conclusions. And the reality is, is that like, I, this is where Chris Argyris's, um ladder of inference, are you familiar with mm -hmm. Chris Argyris' work? Yeah, where he just talks about like, all of us, we take in data from the world. Um, we draw from our own knowledge and experience to interpret that data, right? And then we draw, we make assumptions and we draw conclusions on it. And so I think the key with group decision making is how do you individually slow down, externalize that really rapid process so that you can start to examine it. And oftentimes, even when we just do that individually, we change our minds. We realize we made some inference mistakes. I mean, that's the definition of cognitive biases, right? It's ways that our brains make fast inferences and get it wrong. Um, and then what's really powerful is as a team, we can all share that individual perspectives, which means we now have a much more robust understanding of our problem space because we've considered different perspectives. We can share our knowledge and experience with each other. So we collectively have a much better knowledge base than any of us individually. And what happens when we do that is most of the time we come out agreeing and we make a better decision. And we don't always agree and there's ways to work through those differences. But the vast majority of time, disagreements are just because we're all drawing from different knowledge and experience and we're not sharing that with each other. Yeah, it's like one, one of the things I like to coach facilitators on is like if there's a disagreement in the room, it's usually because of asymmetric information. 
Yep. And sometimes that could be based on prior lived experience. <laughs> like I, I've seen that thing break on the factory floor that yep. you're proposing, right? And this other person hasn't seen it break. Also, it could just be that someone's been told some things that someone else hasn't been told. And so all that perspective needs to be shared and unpacked. I love the fact that you said slow down. I think that's like a yeah. big, uh, so often we need to slow down and move faster. Because if, if you make a hasty decision or, or get into like as repeated conversations that never actually make decisions, it takes way longer. Yeah. One of the things that I really work with teams on is how to externalize your thinking. And this comes from a lot of the design world is about externalizing your thinking. But I'm uh, I really nerd out on John Dewey's work. So John Dewey was an educational philosopher from like the turn of the 20th century. You know, he's an American philosopher looking at how do we maintain a thriving democracy. And what he believed was in order to have a thriving democracy, you need to have good critical thinkers. And so he nerded out on how do we develop good critical thinkers, which is why I love his work. And he talks a lot about these fast inferences that in order to be a good critical thinker, you have to be really aware of the precedents that led to your beliefs and the consequences of those beliefs, which we so rarely do that, right? Is that we, we just have a belief and we believe it strongly and we don't think about like what led to that belief and does that logically follow? And then to go even further to say, and if I believe this is true, then I also have to deal with the consequences of that. And we see this in society right now. Like I feel like we're living through this giant like critical inferences experiment with COVID vaccines, right? So like we had a whole bunch of people that didn't want to wear masks. And then now we don't have to wear masks because we got vaccinated. But then because of the Delta variant and a whole bunch of people chose not to get vaccinated, we're on our way, at least here in Oregon, to wearing masks again. And it's because of the original people who didn't want to wear masks don't want to get vaccinated, right? And so it's like you have this belief that your freedom should not be impinged by mask wearing. The consequence of that belief is a whole bunch of people get sick. We then have a vaccine. You don't want the vaccine because, again, your own freedom. Okay, that's consistent, kind of. The consequence of that is we're going back to wearing masks and your freedom is going to be impinged again. And there's no recognition of like, this is a loop. Like nobody is sitting down to think through about like the consistency of thought and the, and the precedence and the consequences. And we see this everywhere. We see this everywhere. Mm -hmm. So Dewey was right about democracy for sure. But I think in group decision making, not only are we not examining our own thinking, we're all thinking separately. And so we're all making different inferences. We're all, we all have different consequences and we're not taking the time to untangle the mess. We're just dealing with the tangled consequences. Yeah. It's like one of the things I love to say is what gets visualized gets velocity Yeah, and visualizing things uh, allows us to create, you know, mo logic models or, or just shared interpretation of like what's in our, our brains, you know, yeah. if, if it's not on the wall, it's between our ears. And if it's between our ears, then others can't understand or start to understand our point of view and we can't, can't start creating linkages. And those yeah. linkages are where the magic starts to develop. Definitely. And I think the thing to realize is two, there's two parts to this. One is that human working memory is limited, right? So there's only so much we can hold in our head at the same time. And not only that, like if we're spending our cognitive energy on working memory, we then don't have a lot of cognitive energy to process and to play with and to manipulate what's in our working memory. Whereas if we externalize our thinking and put it on paper, we just relieved our working memory and now we can use all of our cognitive energy playing with it, manipulating it, seeing it. 
And um, there's a cognitive psychologist, Barbara Traversky, who does amazing work around spatial thinking and spatial reasoning. And I think this is a natural human ability that most of us learn early on to stop using. Mm. Whereas I think a lot of group work and, and group decision making requires tapping back into that so that as a group, we're looking at the same visuals and manipulating and working on it together. That's really interesting. It reminds me of that Stanford study where they uh, they pitted CEOs against kindergarten students and the kindergartners like totally the like, marshmallow. Like, crushed it. The marshmallow yeah, yeah. one, yeah. It's pretty awesome. I mean, I think that was a little bit more about the thesis there was that they were trying to understand power dynamics. Like the CEOs were like, you know, jockeying for power or whatever, but, and the, and the kindergartners lean in, but there's also this notion of like, they, they're using their minds in a different way too. You know what is what I love about the, that marshmallow experiment is this idea of people think marshmallow experiment and they think the like the willpower one, but this is, you get some spaghetti and a marshmallow and you got to build the tallest structure kind of experiment. And I, what I love about it is that I think the big takeaway for me is that what kids do that adults forget to do is they just try things like yes. it's the best experiment for exposing the value of a bias for action. And I think this comes from also is grounded in Dewey's work. Dewey says we learn by doing. And we see this in things like the OODA loop, right? Like we see this m more recently with the Lean Startup. We learn by doing. So how do we start doing as quickly as possible, but in a really structured way, in a way that allows us to learn from the doing. So not just I'm going to try things at random, but I'm going to try something. I'm going to evaluate the results. I'm going to adjust. I want to come back to the decision-making trio for a second. And one of the things that really jumped out to me in that article you wrote that I love, love, love is this notion of interviewing the customer together. Yeah. And, you know, this is something I struggled with for years and years. As a CTO, I was often led the product team at startups here in Austin and just like always scratch my head around how you know, the CEO would drive these ego-driven decisions, even though we'd bring research to them and stuff. And when we did design sprints with the Google Ventures design team, and they're like, no, no, everyone, everyone's there on Friday and watches the interviews. And I saw this massive shift in appreciation for the outputs of the interviews. And I was like, oh, this is totally obvious. Like, yeah. It was very clear to me. No one had to explain to me why that phenomenon was the case. It was like, oh, they, they lived it. Yep. They, they weren't reading because if you read someone else's report, you can explain it away. Yep. Right? Oh, they, they interpreted it. They pulled out the things that, that they or just had a bone to pick about or whatever. And But if you watch the pain and you see it firsthand, it's a whole different game. Yeah. I mean, I think this is part of our biology, right? I think this really comes down to natural human empathy and maybe even getting to the level of mirror neurons. Like when we see somebody going through something, we feel it the same way they do. And I don't think we know how to communicate that in writing. I don't even know if it's possible to communicate it through notes. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. If you are involved in the research, the research is far more believable. And if it's far more believable, it's far more actionable. And I'm a huge advocate. I mean, I wrote an entire book about how product te the teams that are building the products need to be the ones doing their own research. And it's exactly for that reason. Like, it'd be nice if we could silo it and say, okay, research team, deliver research to the product teams. Uh, but we've tried that. And what happens is the research gets ignored. Mm-hmm. 100%. I've seen it happen over and over again, whether it's like you hiring an external research firm or doing it in-house. The folks that have to take action on it aren't seeing it, then 
they're not likely to take action on it. I think also, so you mentioned startups and almost all of, actually all of my full-time employee experience was at early stage startups. And I think startups are particularly hard because we have this, especially in the States. Um, although in the startup ecosystem, I think it's worldwide. We have this really strong belief in a myth of the hero, the like, the, the mm, super visionary. creative, visionary, single person. And so what happens at startups is that we have a founder who's trying to dictate solutions and dictate. Like, I probably hear every week from somebody who says, um, how do I convince my founder that the product team should be going and doing discovery? And to be honest, I don't know the answer to that question. I think startups learn that product teams need to be doing discovery when the founder's ego gets bruised and they realize that their vision is wrong. And I don't, short of that, I, I mean, I used to work with a lot of startups and I don't anymore because I don't, I don't want to have to tell a founder that, but that's the reality in a lot of cases is that a lot of like startup founders are amazing people because they have such a, as was referred to as Steve Jobs, a reality distortion field that allows them to take an enormous risk and to, and to try to impact the world. And that's the upside of it. And the downside of it is that usually comes with tremendous ego and 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 blinders that leads to most startups failing. And it's the ones that happen to get it right that have this outsized success. And then we celebrate it as this individual creative hero myth. Whereas in reality, I think if we were if we ha- had a good way of comparing for the companies that were learning on the edges and push decision making down, I have a very strong suspicion that they'd have a much higher success rate. I couldn't agree more. Another thing we talked about uh, that's related to this is, or especially the trio decision-making is just problem solving in general. And I know you've done a lot of research and and you studied this and and deeply care about it. What's some advice that you might have for our listeners on how to approach problem solving with a group, just techniques that they might consider for facilitating moments where they need to do some real challenging problem solving? Yeah, so I think we've touched on a few of the elements already. I think it really starts with, if you want to leverage the knowledge and expertise in the group, start with individual work. So there's a pattern that I use all the time, which I think is really helpful when working on complex problems, which is have every individual in the group start by doing the work individually. So what if you have a group of five, you just got five different perspectives right off the bat with little effort whatsoever. Whereas if you have them start together as a group and then say, okay, that's your first perspective, come up with a second one. That sort of lateral thinking is really hard to do as a group. Whereas we can get it for free by just having everybody individually do it. Now you have five versions. Take time to share those versions with each other and then co-create a group version. And that group version is going to be significantly better than any other individual five ones. So I use that pattern quite a bit just to leverage all the expertise in the room. And then the other thing that I would think about is In group decision-making in particular, we tend to get stuck choosing between options, whereas oftentimes we need to be looking for how do we create an even better option. So like I get questions all the time from product teams. My product manager wants to build A and my designer wants to build B. Who's right? They're both wrong. You need to find solution C that the product manager and the designer are both really excited about. And the reality is there is, we have an infinite solution space. So we just are searching in the wrong place if we're still having these awful opinion battles. You know, one of my go-to strategies is if people are talking too much about options and they don't seem thrilled about any of them, and even if they're thrilled about them, if it's just so focused on options, I ask them to take a moment to think about criteria. Yeah. Like, how would you define a good solution? How would you define a good decision? 
and they generally have very thoughtful things to share about this, right? And you can just write them up and go, okay, let's kind of use this as a rubric. And okay, no, these don't score very well, so why not? What, what can you change to make them improve their scores? You know, it's like I feel like these kinds of like prompts can help with that lateral thinking. And you mentioned that being difficult. Have you found any tools that in those moments where you need to shift the lateral thinking? Yeah. So a couple things on lateral thinking. So the first one is you can practice. And that I think the best way to practice lateral thinking are crossword puzzles. So this sort of, mm. this sort of surprises people. Are you a, are you a crossword puzzle person? I am not. I don't spend a ton of time doing it, so I wouldn't okay. claim myself yeah, to be so, a crossword. So puzzle. most people think crossword puzzles are about trivia, and there's a little bit of that, right? Like there's going to be clues about some senator you've never heard of, and it's going to be hard to fill that one in. Um, but for the most part, crossword puzzles are about lateral thinking because they're full of tricks, right? You need a five-letter word that means this thing, and it's pretty easy to come up with a five-letter word that means that thing, so you fill it in. But then you get some feedback as you work on the ones that cross it that that five-letter word is wrong. So now the real skill is come up with another five-letter word that fits that clue. And a lot mm. of crossword puzzle solving is that lateral thinking of my brain gave me this fast answer. I'm now getting feedback that it's wrong. Come up with another answer. So I actually really think everybody that works in a creative field should be doing crossword puzzles. Um, I think it's one of the easiest and fun ways to, to practice lateral thinking. In the moment, though, we have lots of strategies for how to get unstuck right? Like we can look for inspiration. One of my favorites is to look for, this comes from Decisive, which by the way, is the best book on summarizing decision-making research. It's by Chip and Dan Heath. They talk about looking for people who have already solved your problem. And so in the product world, I talk about analogous products and we tend to think about competitors as analogous products, but I actually like to look at if I can understand the heart of the problem that same problem probably exists in lots of different industries. And the further afield I go from my own industry, the more likely I'm going to come up with a creative solution. And like the, the like total cliche example of this is the invention of Velcro. So the inventor of mm. Velcro was walking outside on a hike and got like a cockleburr in their sock and got curious about how in the world do they attach. And it was like this loop and hook function. And that's how Velcro works. And that he was inspired by nature. Right. Nothing even remotely related to the problem he was working on at work. Um, and I think that's we lateral thinking is just looking for analogies in faraway places. You know, my favorite one is the uh, the microwave. Oh, I don't know the microwave story. This engineer was working on a radio tower in the North Pole. After he got done working, he noticed a chocolate bar in his pocket had melted. Oh. He's like, what melted? How did that happen? Hit the North Pole. And so he started figuring out that it was the microwaves getting kind of emitted off of this tower. And so he productized it. Yeah, that's great. That's that's a little bit almost the opposite, right? Is that it's a little bit like a solution looking for a problem, except for the associative nature, right? That associative mm, nature of like, yeah. what else could this be used for is exactly yes. that same lateral thinking, which is great. You know, it, it reminds me of a guy I interviewed once before, Paul Sloan. Have you heard of him? No. So he studies lateral thinking. Oh. And he's like been, he's been kind of crowned the king of lateral thinking. <laughs> and uh, he's got a book called Lateral Thinking Puzzles. And he's got a lot of stuff online. And so if you're, if you're not into crossword puzzles, that might be something to play around with if you want to exercise those lateral thinking muscles. And he, he actually gave me, <laughs> he gave me one for my blog post that I was doing on him. That was like, what was it? Uh, speed limit 50. You see a sign that says speed limit 50. 
And then 10 miles later, you see a sign that says speed limit 30, and then another one that says blah, 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 right? And it's like, what's the speed limit? Or <laughs> It's like, and the, the funny thing is that the signs were telling you how many miles there were to the town speed limit. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am definitely going to buy that book as soon as we are done. So we are reaching our time here. So I want to just give you a moment to leave our listeners with a final thought. Yeah. So the, what I'll share is that I do have a new book out called Continuous Discovery Habits. It is designed to help um, product people. So that's product managers, designers, software engineers, anybody involved in building a digital product, really learn how to collaborate as a team and make team decisions. And to really do that in a way that helps them just make better decisions about what to build. And not just collaborating with the team, but actually collaborating with your customers as well to make sure that what you're building really works for them. If you want to learn about it, you can go to producttalk.org and you can learn about the book and a whole bunch of other opportunities we have for learning. Excellent. Recommend you get over there and check it out. Her work is amazing. Thanks so much for being on the show, Teresa. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com